This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. I'm Patrick Edwards. I'm David Merrill. And we're here at the Wyoming Outdoor Weekend event, and it's been pretty busy with kids today. They've got a bunch of kids here from the local schools learning about the outdoors, which is really awesome. And we do a little bit of a partnership with the Wyoming Game and Fish Department, and Renee Shell's been great, and she's got us a couple of guests here. We're going to give us a little glimpse into their expertise from over the years. And so, fellas, if you could go around and introduce yourselves, that'd be awesome. Great. My name is uh, Hank Edwards, and I run the Wildlife Health Laboratory in Laramie. And I'm Greg Hyatt. I'm the wildlife biologist out of the Rollins in Sinclair. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for coming on the show. How many years have you guys been with Game and Fish? <laughs> <laughs> um, combined, about 75 <laughs> years. Me, is it's... Um, I've been with Game and Fish not quite 30 years, I guess, but yeah, I'm looking to retire here pretty quick. And I've been down out of Rollins and Sinclair for 45 years. Just a couple. Just a couple. <laughs> you've seen you've seen a few seasons come and go. Seen a lot of changes, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And seen a lot of changes with wildlife, wildlife management and Things that have, you know, progressed over the years, the technology, I'm sure. So um, I bet we'll get into that, but I know you're, you're on kind of a limited time frame. So let's talk about bighorn sheep a little bit and uh, some of the other things that are going on in the state of Wyoming. Uh, most people who listen to this show are fairly familiar with the fact that bighorn sheep in the Rocky Mountains, and especially in this area, are on the decline from a number of different factors. Also mule deer. So... Yeah, if you could just kind of give us an overview of where we're at with those things, that would be awesome. You know, we have several herds across the state, and each of those herds is performing a little bit differently, as you would expect, right? So our Whiskey Basin herd, um, which Greg mentioned just earlier, we just had a, a two-and-a-half-day meeting to kind of figure out how best to manage that herd because it is in decline, um, down to around 300 animals when it was well over what greg 1500 close to 15 yeah. yeah so you know that's been a that's been a big herd the problem is is this this particular herd has some pretty nasty pathogens that cause pneumonia and getting those pathogens out of the herd is really really tough we're currently strategizing on how best we can remove those pathogens again pretty tall order pretty tough stuff um well, there's other herds in the state, and I'll let Greg talk about his. Of course, his is the blue ribbon herd in the state right now, but the Jackson herd is is doing quite well. We're starting to see some declines, but it's still pretty good. Um, and several of our other herds are pretty stable. So whether that be Douglas or Encampment Creek, um, Elk Mountain, the Absarokas, Devil's Canyon, we've seen a recent die off. We're hoping that'll reverse itself. So basically. All our herds are kind of, you know, either stable, maybe there's some minor declines, but they're pretty stable. The exception would be Greg. I'll let him talk about his herd, which is doing very, very well in the state. He's talking about the Ferris Seminole herd, which is a, a transplant herd we started 
reintroducing sheep in in 2009. And then we have gradually um, quit adding sheep and just let the herd grow on its own. And it's gotten to where it's right where we want it to be. And, you know, knock on wood, nothing else is going to bad is going to happen. But I, I guess getting into what Hank was talking about, one of the heavy protocols we make is that if you're going to transplant sheep to a new area, or in our case, it was supplementing a sheep herd that had faded away, is that you have to make sure that the sheep that are there that you bring in on are de- disease clean of all the major pathogens, but then also the source sheep have to be clean of all the major pathogens that you worry about, the, the germs that you worry about for bighorn sheep. And so that's largely where Hank's expertise comes in as doing the testing, making sure everything's to protocol, that we've got the right time frame, and saying, yeah, you can go ahead. And it's been through that that we have taken ours. And most of ours came from the Devil's Canyon up by Lovell. And some of them came from Oregon. Again, the same protocol. In fact, it's even more protocol when you're going interstate transplants. But uh, that is how we've gotten a sheep herd. And I think the main thing I got from all the, the discussion with the other sheep managers in the state the past few days is that healthy habitats produce healthy sheep and they can survive input of diseases and pathogens better than sheep that are in habitat that does not work well or is not in good condition. And so, you know, the takeaway and people sometimes get tired of hearing about it's habitat, habitat, habitat. Healthy habitat makes healthy animals and they can withstand the the surprises that show up from wherever the source is and recover faster than areas where the habitat isn't in good shape and then you're trying to figure out how to fix the problem, which is where they are, I think, in Dubois now. So what makes your area so good for habitat for these sheep? Well, the sheep are there before. We have, you know, old records from the 1800s of the pioneers coming through that bighorn sheep were there. And we actually tried bringing them in since the 60s and the 70s, and they did not do well. But we were always bringing in sheep from Whiskey Basin, because that's where the healthiest herd was. But those sheep lamb out at 11,000 feet. They lamb out in June. And what we found is they did did not do well in my 7,000-foot elevations because they're lambing too late. The country's all turned dry. The vegetation's carrying out the protein quality. The diet's gone down. And these low-elevation sheep that we've been getting from Devil's Canyon and also from Oregon lamb about four to six weeks earlier and so the lambs are hitting the ground when the vegetation is just right to help the the mother ewe support that lamb and so that's what's been good for us it's not really that we're better habitat than any place else but we finally got the right sheep to match the habitat we had so what diseases play a major role in i guess what, what diseases are you guys mostly looking for in, in sheep? The disease is respiratory disease or pneumonia. It's the pathogens that maybe you're asking. So there's, and everybody's eyes are about to glaze over as I roll through these. But <laughs> there's Mannheimia hemolytica, the old pasturella hemolytica, a pretty nasty pathogen, um, kills sheep pretty quickly. Mycoplasma ovinemoniae is another pathogen that we continually fight with in many of our herds. Um, It's more of a slower pathogen. So 
animals may take four to six weeks, maybe even longer, before they, before they finally die of the disease. Then there's several others, Pasturella, uh, Multocida, and I could go on, but we generally focus on those three to four pathogens. And um, um, we've really built up our state laboratory to be able to isolate those pathogens at the sheep, bring them back to the bring them back to the laboratory, and I and identify them. So, so how are you collecting these samples? What's the main use to collect them? Are you darting and working with live sheep? Are you collecting yes. samples from harvested sheep or both? So general, well, both. But generally, what we do when we're doing a herd monitoring program is those animals are either darted, like you just mentioned, or they're helicopter net gun, right? So a helicopter shoots a net on them. They bring them back to us. We collect nasal swabs, usually swabbing both nasals, and we also collect tonsil swabs. So each of those different samples is looking for different pathogens. And um, then we'll, we'll put those swabs right onto a culture plate, sometimes right out in the field. That's where we get the very best recovery of some of these pathogens. But the rest of them, we'll take them back to the lab, and it takes us a couple of weeks, but um, we eventually extract any pathogens that are there on those swabs, get them on plates, and where we can identify them. So traditionally, that Whisker Mountain herd was a, I mean, it's the herd that we were using to seed sheep throughout the West, not just within the state. What's going on to make that herd now not as viable as it was you know, 30, 40 years ago? That is a great question. So generally what happens when a pathogen is introduced or pathogens are introduced into a sheep herd, you get a large die off, right? But those animals that are able to withstand the bug, they maintain that bug within the population. So now you have a group of adults or a population of adults that can tolerate those pathogens. But when they have lambs, those lambs being having an undeveloped immune system, they are very sensitive to the pathogens. So what happens is you have a herd that has very little recruitment. So over time, and for whiskey, it's been the last 30 years, we've seen that population slowly decline every year, just a few less sheep on the landscape because there's not enough lambs that are surviving the pathogens to uh, maintain that herd. So you answered one of my questions, and that was, are domestic sheep playing much of a role in these pathogens being reintroduced in this herd? And it sounds like, no, they just have it naturally, and they have a really tough time with recruitment, which is young fawns coming up. The adults obviously spread the pathogen to them because they perpetually carry it, and Correct. then there's no recruitment. So Correct. So these pathogens, who knows the source? But it was probably many, 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 many years ago when they were introduced into the whiskey basin herd. We're just seeing uh, after, like I said, thir- at least 30 years uh, of where the herd is now trying to live with those or persist with those pathogens. So to go back to Greg's point earlier about habitats being able to support or help these sheep persist with the pathogens, Jackson is a great example. So there's a herd that um, uh, the same pathogens occur, maybe not quite at the same number or prevalence, but those pathogens still occur. But the habitat is so much better in Jackson that those sheep are able to maintain, if not grow, in the presence of the same pathogens. So what is it about the habitat that makes it so much better for them or more ideal? 
that's a great question. Yeah, <laughs> Greg, what's what's the answer? <laughs> well, what you're ultimately looking for is lamb survival. If you only get one or two lambs a year, you're going to pay for that five, six years down the road when you want to get your license and apply because we're only going to have maybe one or two rams into the population. Whereas if you can get your lamb survival up so that you're getting 40 or 50 lambs for every 100 ewes, your herd continues to grow. You've got a healthy herd and you can again get back to those license levels that we used to enjoy and also have healthy sheep on the range. The, there's two things really that make a difference for survival of the lambs, which is basically the, the ewe has to produce the milk to keep them alive, but it's the quantity of food and the quality of food. And you need both of those. And so if you're in an area like Jackson, where apparently their high elevation has deeper soils, maybe a little better moisture than the Dubai side, um, then you have more forage produced and it also stays lush green or what we would call high protein, more nutritious longer through the year. Mm -hmm. But if you get the conditions where you've got extremely poor soils and, and like the folks up in Dubois were saying, you know, a lot of our soils are rock, but then also if it dries out, you don't get the moisture that you, they get because you're on the, the shadow side of the mountain range then you can't get that forage into the use as quickly. So that that's what habitat basically does is you, you keep them well fed and you have usually higher lamb survival. Sounds like a combination of habitat and then the timing of the birth, the timing of all those things have to go together, right? With when the feed's available, all these things have to really kind of play in at the right time. Otherwise your recruitment rate goes down, right? Yeah. And that's what Hank was talking about up in whiskey is that, you know, their recruitment has been so poor that, you know, every ram they've got has to last years more because he's not getting replaced right away. And that is what we're seeing in Ferris and Seminole with our sheep is that we've got the right synchrony between when the lambs hit the ground and when our country, you know, flush green with spring. And so we are seeing good lamb recruitment. Our herd is growing and we are producing rams that have good horn growth. And our license quotas have been slowly creeping up as the herd increased. So what is the answer for the Whiskey Mountain herd? I mean, what, and I know you guys probably don't have like the silver bullet. What are the things that you guys are actively trying? Because I know there's a lot of different people involved. Bighorn Sheep Foundation being one of them. Game and Fish, you know, Forest Service. Everybody's kind of trying to figure this out, right? So... So what are some things that are being done to try to help with that particular population? Number one, I should not be talking about this. <laughs> Zach Gregory is the biologist up there. Mm -hmm. And for me to come from Rollins sure. and, and try to describe what they're doing up in his country, I would miss important things. Right. But they have been looking at, um, through Amy Anderson, our habitat biologist down here in Lander, have been working with the Forest Service to try to has some controlled burns up on above the winter range to number one, help open up travel channels for the sheep to get from winter to the high country summer range. But also the idea of opening up some forage in that interim habitat. Because again, like they said, their, their top is rock. Even if you had the perfect climate, you may not grow a lot of food up there because there's just not the soil. It's just heavy rock. 
But if you just come down the slope a little bit, all of a sudden you get where all the snowbanks pile up and you've got deeper soils, more productivity, and sheep don't like it because it's full of trees. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they were showing us was some historic photos from early in the last century of the mountain ranges up there. And they did not have all the, yeah, the mountain has gone through succession. And the idea is maybe we don't always want to be with this climax of trees. Maybe once in a while we want to set parts back so we have open areas that will support some of these species that don't do well with the heavy timber forest. And so the Forest Service has been working, like I said, with our agency, mainly through Amy, and trying to get some of that done up above whiskey. Now, on the on the research side, are there some other strategies that you guys have come up with over time, over your career, in dealing with this chronic pneumonia, chronic spreading of the pneumonia? What, what are some things that you've seen that have worked well um, over the years and things that might help in the future? Just to give a little bit of uh, history here, you know, like I said, about 10, 15 years ago, the Game and Fish Department, of course, my laboratory, really worked hard to do a good survey of what survey, what bugs were in what path, what, excuse me, what pathogens were in what populations. So... We did that, like I said, many years ago. Once we had a good handle on what pathogens were present, then we compared that to herd performance. Is there any link there between just the presence of pathogens and how they're doing? And as you can imagine, as Greg has alluded to, the answer is no. Some herds can persist in the presence of pathogens, some can't. So as far as techniques to manage uh, some of these pneumonia uh, or pneumonia in some of these populations. Unfortunately, there's very few tools that are available. So just recently, like in the last couple of years, um, they began what's called test and removal. And that's simply capturing a sheep, testing for specific pathogens, and you do that twice. So they have to test positive twice at least say 12 months apart. So we know whether the, that animal is chronically infected with that pathogen and not just transiently infected and they were gonna shed it and get over it. So those that are chronically infected are removed from the population. And uh, that is something we're just starting to explore, um, whether that's gonna be a viable uh, method of, of curing the problem. The big problem with test and removal is you need to be able to capture the majority of the population, right? You've got to get all those, all those individuals that are spreading the pathogen out. That works great when you have a herd of cattle in a pen and you can just individually <laughs> pick them out. It doesn't work very well when you've got bighorn sheep scattered across the entire range, some in wilderness, some not, some way up on peaks, some in the bottom. So. To, to get your hands on all those animals and test them twice, it's a big call. Yeah. It's a big call. That makes sense. Well, I know uh, we, we, we cornered you for a short time frame, and I've really appreciated getting to get into the nuts and bolts of kind of what you've done, sheep management, and I really do appreciate that you've been out there. You know, I, One of these years, I, could, I, could I come over to Seminole and hunt sheep? Yes. But my, my heart and soul is, is up there in that Whiskey Mountain herd. It's just... I, I chase elk up there. I chase mule deer up there. And if you've been in that country enough, you you know what I'm talking about. It's yep. it's iconic mountain man, western wilderness. So hopefully we can uh, come to some resolution and get get me a tag in, in the next four decades <laughs> <laughs> before my knees are uh, 
not capable to carry me up in that country anymore. So I guess if I can, I'm going to throw a plug in here for our website. I think that any of your listeners who wants more information on respiratory disease and bighorn sheep or chronic wasting disease or brucellosis or rabbit hemorrhagic fever, all the common diseases that we're now seeing in our state, go to our website. Just just type in Wyoming Game and Fish Wildlife Disease and it'll take you to our website where we have lots of articles, lots of resources, pictures, anything you may need. And in addition, our phone numbers at the bottom of that page. Never hesitate to call, contact us. That's what we're there for. Well, thanks again for taking the time. Like I said, I know you got other things to go do, but appreciate you coming on the podcast for a little bit. So thank you for that. You're very welcome. And thanks for all the hard work you guys are doing. Thank you. Yeah. So I guess we can get into it some more on uh, your neck of the woods. <laughs> so Greg, you've got lots of years of experience. You've been in that country, seen a lot of cool things. What's some of your favorite stories and some of your favorite things that you've been able to do over your career in that beautiful area around Sinclair? Because a lot of people drive right by it on I-80. They don't give two thoughts to what's actually up in in that area and in that country. So share a couple of stories about it. <laughs> the warden that was in Rollins when I got there all that time ago said they did the best thing they could for our country by putting that interstate where it was because it's the boring, least attractive part of the world down there. <laughs> and, everybody, and everybody just wants to drive through. I-80 is the decoy of Wyoming. If, yeah. if you want to see what it's like to live in Wyoming, just drive from one end of the state to the other in I-80, look out the window, and if, if, that's, if, if you like that, go ahead and move here. <laughs> <laughs> but really, there's a lot of really neat country, not only close to the interstate, but you just get 20, 30 miles off, and all of a sudden you're in a different world. So... Uh, the Red Desert's just barely north of that interstate, and that's a really cool place in this state. That is one of my favorite places, yeah. And when, when people told me I first moved here a little over a decade ago, and they're like, oh, that's elk country, right? I'm I'm an Aspen, you know, high mountain, timbered, let's go chase elk up in the mountains, right? People said, oh, there's elk out there. I look out there, I'm like, that looks like, you know, jackrabbit and antelope country to me, but there is a lot of elk. And once you go chase them out there, it's kind of fun. So do you do a lot of work on like the different herds in that area, doing population samples and those kind of things, uh, the elk and pronghorn and whatnot in that area? Well, that's basically my job. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. To, to collect the data or the, yeah, the data that the game wardens collect and compile it and figure out, okay, what are we doing? Are we going up? Are we going down? Are we supposed to be? Uh, was it a good year, bad year? And then the ultimate thing is, what do we do next year? Or in this case, what do we do this year? We were discussing earlier the hard winter that we just came through down there. And all of a sudden, all of our plans and all of our data collection went out the window because Mother Nature said, you're starting over. And so you've got to kind of get an idea of what you've got left over and then start building. And, you know, this is my fourth hard winter that I've been through now down in that country. And it's maybe the second hardest, not the hardest, but the second hardest. And the nice thing, or I guess the good thing this time around is it had a lot more data to work with. Um, when that winter hit, we had a collar study going into antelope in the Red Desert. And we still had 33 collared antelope that were still walking around at the end of December. 
And then when that storm hit on New Year's Eve and gave us 20-some inches that did not blow off, did not settle, just crested over, we were able to keep track of those and see an idea of what our losses were. And we have not had that availability before. You had to, to get out there, truck, snow machine, and, you know, by guessing by golly, and in my case, a lot of going out and checking the dead animals and seeing who are we losing? You know, you get a hard winter. The first things you lose are the really young because they have no fat reserves and the really old because they don't have any fat reserves. And as your winter gets harder and harder, you start creeping into your young age classes. And so that's what I just finished doing beginning this week is looking at the age classes that we lost in this past winter and comparing it to previous ones. So that's what the job is, is to, to adapt to what Mother Nature throws at us. So this year being a particularly hard year, what did you see when you went out there to do some of this work? Because I can tell you just in Fremont County and some of the other places I've been hiking and looking around, there's a lot of fawns out there that are that are gone. You know, we lost recruitment on those fawns, but kind of how did it look down in your area? Well, we lost most of the fawns, not all. I actually saw some walking around, but most of the fawns uh, on the radio collars, we lost just over half. So the adults, that's that's a serious cut for antelope. And I was seeing, starting to see some of the stronger age classes showing up. The yearlings, the two-year-olds, the three-year-olds, they should have been the most physically fit of anybody out there, and we were losing them. And so it was just, you know, there was just too much snow covering too much food that it didn't make any difference whether or not you could get where the food was or where you were. There was no food. It was all under snow. The interesting thing is that it changes when you get to different places. Um, we were having a hard time even getting out in the field in January and February. And Laramie researchers wanted to get out and work on some of their collar studies in the Jeffrey City area. And they had no comprehension that you can't get there. 287's closed. You yeah. can't pull off a 287. There wasn't a place to put a single vehicle. And yet Laramie Plains was having a cold winter, but they didn't have the snow cover we did. I mentioned how many antelope we lost in the Red Desert, but I visited with my neighboring biologist in Casper, and he has a few antelope in the herds between Casper and Alcova, and they didn't lose any. Wow. So they had the same winter, but they didn't have that hit snow that hit us and everything, you know, to the Wyoming range. That's the way it is in this country. It's weird in Wyoming how the weather can be different, even just between our houses. So he lives more like, I guess, to the west of me in Fremont County, and I'm about 20 minute drive to the east. It can be completely different at my house than it is at his house. Like the wind could be blowing. He could be having a storm at his house. and I got nothing at my house. It's just crazy how different our state is on the weather yeah. and it can only be a few miles. Yep. But I mean, in our area, we saw a pretty substantial loss. I know just because the snow stayed deep for a long time and Fremont, mm -hmm. classic Fremont County, Sublette County, same way where we got a lot of snow and that caused temperatures to stay low, which caused the snow to stick around further. And then we just kept stacking snow on snow. I don't know how many you've seen, but I've seen a number of fawns between mule deer and antelope that are, 
you know, that didn't make it this last year. There's definitely going to be some locality to this. And a question I have with that locality is, you know, CWD with relation to a hard winter. And the question that's going to be asked is, is this going to help or hurt herds with CWD? So, i.e., infected animals or animals that might have been prone to be infected with CWD, did we just lose all them, basically remove them from the population, and now it's gone away? And I, I'm suspecting the answer is no, but let's yeah. let's hear your I wish input. Hank was still here, but one of the reasons we have to go to all the trouble of pulling those lymph nodes out of every deer and elk that we want to sample is because you cannot see the effects of CWD for the first six months to a year. They are perfectly physically healthy. And so the whole idea that winter comes in and thins out the weak and infirm doesn't work with CWD until they're in those last few weeks when the the brain function basically isn't working anymore because of all the destruction of their brain tissues. And then they start falling and, and yeah, they'll die in the cold winter. But so many of the others, they're not physically unfit yet. Okay. And so, yeah, it, it would be nice if we could just say, well, hard winter will clear them out. We can start over. But it, CWD, unfortunately, does not do that. It's hard to really pinpoint with CWD. I mean, research has been going on for many years, right? Of like, how do you deal with CWD? What are some things that over your career have changed? Because I know CWD really kind of came in. What was it in the 80s that we kind of figured that out? Or was it even earlier or later? I can't remember, but... I guess my career is the history of CWD. Okay. When I was doing my master's reach research, we were using pen-raised deer for food habit study. And when I came in, they said, now, the deer never last. They apparently can't live in captivity because they always die after a couple of years. And they called it the strange deer dying disease. Oh. And they did not know what it was. And then Beth Williams... Um, from CSU, and I think uh, Terry Spraker, also from CSU, are the ones that figured out that this was a prion, or prion, however you want to pronounce mm -hmm. it, that it's a pathogen, that it rots the brain away. And so my career has basically gone from, we didn't know anything about it except that deer died, and to now we have such an understanding um, in detail about some of the genetics of it, even we don't necessarily, we do not know how to cure it, we have a little better understanding of how it spreads and what you can do maybe to slow that spread. So, and it has gone from being a little localized thing between basically Fort Collins and, and Seville to being, you know, across most of the state now. So it has been a big change in the last 45 years. I've got probably a hundred questions rolling through my mind. <laughs> I'm just trying to find the pertinent ones and looking, you know, take your, your long standing career with, studying setting seasons and dates how do you i mean how does that really affect you you guys are going out you're collecting this data you're, you're getting a population sample and you're setting the seasons but give me a little more insight to how that actually works so you're going to take these collar studies and these disease studies you're going to take all the data you can and say i mean i'm i'm guessing hey we want 100 animals in this certain area right and you look at herd dynamics and then you set tag quotas off of the relevant data you're seeing? Well, in every one of our herds, we have an objective of what we want to have out there. It isn't necessarily the number of animals. Sometimes we have objectives of just what we want to see. We have some herds that have a satisfaction objective. If, you know, 60% of the landowners and 60% of the hunters are happy with it, 
then that's good. Just because we have some herds that are such low density, it doesn't make a lot of sense to spend a lot of license money to do high detailed you know, surveys and get a really good estimate of something that isn't significant in a, a regional position in the first place. There's a limit to how you want to spend your money. You want to be able to get real good data and, and not just go through the motions. So we have different objectives, but every year the biologist's job is to collect the data that we got and that the game board submit and then look at it and say, okay, where are we? Um, Red Desert Antelope is an example. Our population objective is 15,000 antelope in those three areas we call the Red Desert. After we got all the information and we are still recovering from those two hard winters we had three years ago, we were back up. We figured somewhere between 10,005 and 11,000. So we could afford to be more generous with licenses. The fawn crops had finally come up. They had been remained low for a couple of years after those winters. And so, you know, everything was looking good. And then New Year's Eve showed up and we lost half of our adults and most of our fawns. And so now we are starting over. And so, okay, the idea of having some doe fawn licenses, that's out the window. We, we need the does that we've got now. And, you know, the, the bucks we've got have got to last a few years because we don't have replacements coming up right behind them. We lost a whole age class of fawns. And so we've got to stretch that out. So the quotas go down. And this year, is, at least in my country, is probably the most dramatic we've ever gone down just because we are starting from below where we wanted to be to begin with. If, if we'd been sitting at that 15,000 and had this winter, then we'd probably be a lot happier about being a little more generous and more optimistic about how quickly we can get back to normal quotas. But since we were already almost a third down below where we were supposed to be, then you have to be kind of stingy. Yeah. And rightfully so. I mean, it's the same thing with mule deer in a lot of places. I mean, they took it really hard on the chin this last winter. So I'm sure quotas are going to be very low for, for any kind of mule deer hunting, right? Well, it depends. And, and I, it was interesting some of the comments that were before the commission when keep people spoke before the commission and some of the written comments that folks gave to our website, a lot of people are saying, well, we've been through this before. We'll be back soon. Well, that was true for two of the hard winters that I've been through. But the third one, we did not come back soon. The country turned dry and our fawn production barely crept up. And what if we have another hard winter coming this winter again? Yeah. And that's where this is a double-edged sword is you guys talking about cutting tags. Well, that's cutting your revenue. That's cutting your research and data and boots on the ground initiatives to put in things like wildlife crossings, right? Yes, but fortunately, again, having been here for four and a half decades, I think Game and Fish is in better financial shape now than it has ever been in my career. They've been real penny pinching all along anyway. But the legislature for about the past eight to 10 years has been more understanding that you need money to do what the people want you to do with their wildlife. And so they've been allowing increases. Uh, The other thing that has helped us quite a bit is that there's an excise tax. You guys probably know this on all firearms and ammunition. Well, those sales went up, you know, pre-pandemic and during the pandemic. And so that money is finally coming back to the states from the federal government. and, And we're doing well. So financially, I don't think Cheyenne is worried about, oh, my God, we lost license money. I think they've got enough of a cushion that we'll be fine. And at least that's what they've told us. And, and they usually don't 
give us a PR message. They usually tell us what's really going on. So I'm, I'm not worried about it. And they, I have never had Cheyenne or anybody else say, boy, give us every license you can because we're in dire straits. Because even when the budget was tight, it's like, well, we'll just have to have less flying. You'll have to run your trucks longer. You're going to have to, you know, not go out every day on the hunting season work. You might have to save gas. You know, there were ways of pinching the pennies to make sure we get it right. And that's one of the beauties of working for this outfit. Now, by doing this extreme cut, say, take an example, this red desert antelope herd, you know, by cutting the, the doe tags and doing this, how quickly do you expect if we have traditional winters and, and decent springs, how quickly do you <laughs> expect a, a population to rebound? Because you said we're at 11, we're going to lose, so we're going to be at somewhere between five and seven. I'm not, not going quoting. to be. We're we, there. We're there. We right. were there by the end of February. I, okay. you know, I got interviewed and, and I don't know who it was and I don't want to pick on it too much, but they said we could lose, you know, the biologist in Sinclair said we could lose half of our antelope. And it's like, no, they're already gone. They're gone. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. this yeah. is How not, quickly... not something we need to try to fix. It's done. Mother nature said you're out. So, so are we three years or five years out till we get to that 15,000 number? I don't know. Um, I get hunters that call. <laughs> and ask, especially non-residents that ask, well, should I put in this year or should I just put in for my preference points and, and come back in two or three years? And it's like, well, how good's your crystal ball? Yeah. Right. Normally, we used to rebound very quickly after a tough, tough winter because you usually have lots of moisture in the ground. The vegetation greens up. And so you get good farm production and you can cover it quickly. But that did not happen after 1920. We stayed dry. And it stayed dry in 21. And then finally in 22, we finally started seeing some improvement in our farm crops. And we think, okay, now we can start building. So if your crystal ball can tell me what the weather's, what the gonna weather's gonna be like, I might be able to answer that question. But otherwise, that's basically why biologists like me have a job. I mean, you look at <laughs> we have to go look at it every year and say, yeah. okay, where are we this year? Where you can have a now? great pheasant population, but if you get a real wet spring, all the clutches die, right? Yeah, and, and then and you don't get any recruitment. Of, that's a lot of timing. I I don't have pheasants in my country, but I have sage grouse, and it's exactly the same. It's you want that moisture, but it's the timing that oh, makes that a difference of whether or not you have good chick surviving. I mean, I'm a fourth generation Wyoming boy, so. This the one thing that I've heard my entire life from my relatives is you can never predict Wyoming, <laughs> right? And I'm sure you would agree with that. We just don't know season to season. It was very concerning for me because this is the hardest winter I've ever seen. You know, living here in Fremont County, I'd never seen that much snow on the ground. They had talked about it happening in the 1970s, but hadn't hadn't seen it since then. You know, that's like 50 years ago. So I'm a little apprehensive just you know, being a, a longtime resident here of like, if we do have another bad winter, you know, like people are saying we might, you know, it's going to be really tough. Cause I mean, you're just to give people perspective and you got to go out and see this and I've been out in the field and seen it. There are bodies everywhere of these antelope and deer that just didn't make it through the winter. And it's, it's almost like there was a war over the winter, right? And <laughs> it's, it's pretty wild to go down into a draw and see 15, 20 carcasses. Like, it's just not something that you're used to seeing, at least not me as, like I said, a lifelong Wyoming resident. It's disturbing. Like, like I said, I've seen it at least four times before. And again, the radio caller information, which is just a wonderful thing to have because we did not have it before. Mm -hmm. You know, we knew we'd already lost half the herd. That's 5,000 antelope. Well, 
that's 5,000 antelope laying out there on the ground. It, they're going to be feeding magpies and coyotes and, and yeah. flies. But it, so it's not a surprise that we find them. Some places you find a bunch of them together. Some places you find one every mile or so. But we knew they were there. So I, I guess it doesn't bother me. I, I look at them as a source of data. I'm going out there and saying, okay, right. who did we lose? Yeah, it's just crazy to me to see that many. Because like I said, in my lifetime, I hadn't seen that before. So it's just, it's wild to see it. Um, I'm curious to see what happens, but none of us have that crystal ball, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> but we're hopeful that we stay green and that there's plenty of food for them to eat so they can have a, a good recruitment year this year and hopefully a little more mild winter. But it's really tough to say. I was visiting with one of our ranchers in not the middle of this, but maybe the end of it. And, you know, they were having a hard time too, of course. And, mm -hmm. and he says, I keep telling myself, lots of water, lots of green, lots of water, lots of green. <laughs> you know, there, there is an upside to this. Mm -hmm. We just have to get through that winter. And we did. I mean, we're in the upside now. The country looks great. There's water in places I haven't seen it for a long time. Um, so the, the chance of recovering those fawns back that you're talking about is good whether or not Mother Nature will be nice and give us that moisture through the middle of the summer that we need to get everything through to the end of the summer, I don't know. But at least we're off to a real good start now because we have the moisture and we have the green out there. Yeah. I'm optimistic. Hopefully it's not too bad. Well, I have to give you guys kudos. And I've, I've been in other states where you come through a bad winter, you come through something else where populations decrease. And instead of them saying okay we're, we're going to manage this correctly they just say well we need the funds we're not going to adjust tags we, we need the funds right and that's okay but but like we've talked about if you don't reduce those tags in that red desert this year and we get another bad winter next year that sets us up for a, a perfect storm of we're going to go from the 5,000 antelope you're like, okay well we'll have a really good spring we'll be back up to seven we'll leave the doe tags alone this year all of a sudden we have another bad winter we're now down to two and you can't you need to adjust those tag levels to what the herd dynamics are, right? And elk are yeah. in some areas, we're above management objective. We could give, we give, if you're in the right, right know how in the right places, you can get a couple elk tags in this state if you pay attention to how to do it. Yeah. And I, I can't remember his name, but one of our folks out of Cheyenne was pointing out that this is a time when you should be hunting elk. They probably will not stay up forever. We used to have a time when deer were everywhere and there were almost no antelope. And then in the 80s, all of a sudden, it started switching. and We had tons of antelope. And so we cannot keep it even and perfect. We like to, and that's human nature to try. But Mother Nature keeps stepping in and saying, no, we're going to do something different this year. And so you should, like you said, be enjoying the elk hunting opportunity while it's here. It may not stick around forever. Um, it may be a while before we get to bring antelope and deer back into the picture, but you know, there are options and elk are the, the good story right now. Yeah. It's good to have plentiful elk, but there's also a consequence to that. And we've, we've talked to some other people about that, you know, habitat for mule deer gets affected because the elk, you know, if they're over the capacity that they should be, they're taking up the feed and then the mule deer are getting pushed out because they can't find the feed. So it's, it's one of those things you're right. It's, it's a good time to hunt elk. They're plentiful. <laughs> and if you want to help a mule deer, that might be one of the better ways to do it, um, according to a lot of people I've talked to. Yeah, and I don't know if that's true in all places, but I suspect when you get out into the desert, like you're talking about, where there are limited green patches, that there's probably some truth to that. 
and uh, they've been doing a lot of work south of Rock Springs. I'm not sure that our people necessarily buy into the news releases you're seeing coming out about that, that it's all elk. We don't have to worry about anything else. I would but, say in the Jackson area, the, the deer are so much higher than the elk that it, I mean, there's no, there's, there's no competition for the feed. But yeah, in the Red Desert, I think there's some serious competition for the feed. The elk are going to be a little more tolerant of predators, human activity, everything else versus the mule deer. And, you know, you, you, I, I've seen it where cows and deers and horses, you know, same thing, horses and cows in the same pasture, horses are going to push the cows out and they're going to pick the better feed. Yeah. And not to pick on anybody else, but at least in the desert, I've seen that with the, the, what they call wild horses, the feral horses. Thank you for being correct in your vernacular (laughs) because I get a little upset about the the Spanish horses that were released in this country that we treat as sacred cows. Well, I like them. They are gorgeous. I think we should have some of them, but I think they should be managed. And the BLM has been doing better Better. in the in the, at least in the red desert in my part of the world but they and are horribly so, destructive on their environment and habitat horses are by far much more the the the, the hoof the way they they utilize the feed they're more so than deer and elk they are more aggressive they beat out the the creek bottoms and the spring areas um, i would wonder what they're doing to sage grass maybe more than deer just because you've lose those green areas right next to water and and again in the desert that's kind of important and so like i said i like seeing them but their numbers were way out of whack and the blm has done some gathers at least my part of the desert and things are looking better and it's like everything else you need to manage it to keep it in balance with what's available and they're doing that whenever the lawsuits allow them to well i i only own 16 acres but the people that owned it before me I have five horses and it's, I can rotate my crops and my paddocks and I can pretty well produce enough feed to feed my five horses. They had 40 horses on that place and my topsoil is all on the neighbor's place, right? That's, that's 16 acres. You can't have 40 horses there. So we need to do some of that similar stuff. But again, kudos to you guys for, for doing all this research and work and data and collecting it and, and coming with a consensus of saying this is the path forward. It's, it is still a best educated guess, right? You don't have that crystal ball to say, if we do this right now, the antelope will be fine next year. But you can make a pretty good educated guess and say statistics is pointing towards we need to reduce tags to make sure that we have some herd strengthen this herd and let's and if you do this year after year after year you start seeing trend lines and then you can trend up and down am i correct in that i would like to think that we have good trend lines but, but things they're all change over the place. so yeah that things change so quickly again the reason we need to be out there every year collecting this information is that it suddenly changes and if you're not watching it and keeping track of it then your seasons might be out of whack with what the real world needs and so that's the whole idea of getting out there and every year checking to see that the production is still up or, you know, how much is our survival looking like or, you know, do we have the bucks that we think we have out there. There's a big majority of that just flying out in a helicopter and looking out the window and taking a clicker and counting how many heads you see standing at that certain time or what's the date, what's the crucial data you're looking for? It depends on the species. For antelope, the best time for checking antelope is right now. When the range is green and they're spread out as evenly as they can be, and we do what we call our line transect survey, when we use it in a fixed-wing airplane, and you basically fly strips across your herd unit and get a sampling 
of how many animals out there and estimate what the density is. And so that's for me is coming up next week, hopefully for, for some of my herds that I'm doing. For deer, a lot of times it's helicopter work and a lot of times it's, you know, December, right in the, the peak of the rut. Um, elk and bighorn sheep, we tend to do later because you want the snow that gets them in where you can count everybody quicker and easier. It would be nice if we could just do one survey and get all four, five, six big game species we're worried about done at one time, but it doesn't work that way. Like we heard earlier, it'd be great if you could, you know, net gun all the sheep at once, sample them, <laughs> get them all in one pen. That's just not going to work. These, these are wild animals, right? They, they go where they want, when they want, and they don't have a very... I guess, predictable patterns. Some of them are wanderers, right? They might be there every day for a month and then they're just gone. Yeah. yeah. So that's where the radio collar stuff really plays in the key is you can get some great data and some great data points. And when you need to find that animal, you can find that animal. And we are learning a lot from that. And it's looking at it from 45 years of this, the, the new biologists that we've got coming in, that that computer technology is second nature to them. It's really impressive. I have high hopes on what we're going to learn about our herds with the people that we're hiring on now. It's really impressive to, to watch them dig into that data and figure out what it means. It's awesome. But yeah, Greg, thank you for everything. Thanks for being willing to come on the podcast and talk to us. You know, it's it's been a pleasure. And thank you for your 45 years of service. <laughs> sure. Thank you, guys. Thanks, yeah. Patrick. And uh, I hope... Thanks, Dave. Hopefully, uh, you know... You can come up to Fremont County sometime and see our studio space. I mean, we're not in it right now, but it'd be cool if you come up and see it. Maybe we could have another conversation. It'd be fun. Well, I'm sure they appreciate you being here. So well, we appreciate you. them having us because this is this is fun. It's it's about teaching the next generation, right? And uh, you know, showcasing what Wyoming has, which is incredible wildlife. I mean, that's what the state is known for. Again, thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks again for listening to the Radcast Outdoors podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. If so, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe, share, and give us a five-star rating, which really helps other people find the show. You can find all of our shows, recipes, giveaways, videos, and much more at radcastoutdoors.com. While you're there, please help support the show by purchasing a Radcast Outdoors shirt or hat. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a Radcast community on Facebook called Radcast Nation, and we'd love for you to join in the conversation there. And of course, please help support our sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you again to PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Until next time, get out there and enjoy the outdoors.